Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. You guys can turn, if you haven't already, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray again right now because I'm not going to read uh, the chapter. I'll read the first verse and then we will we'll, we'll pray and we'll get into it uh, tonight. And so, Father, we, we right now, we just ask you, Lord, for your, your presence, for your spirit, for your word to fall and descend upon us. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that you lay before us uh, week by week and day by day that you've put it before us. So help us, Lord, tonight. You know what we need. You know, Lord, what this passage is intended to do. So, Lord, may it find its mark in each of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, it says this. It says, it came to pass after the year was expired. At the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still in Jerusalem. So we were having a discussion on a very long car ride recently, uh, me and my kids, and uh, someone asked the question that if time travel were a reality and a possibility and you could go back to any point in history for just a period of time, say like an hour, which one would it be? And, and I immediately knew what, what my point would be, but we went around to, and, you know, everybody had their different things of the things they'd like to see and, you know, Noah's flood and, you know, different, different um, things. And, 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 and then it was my turn. And I said, my number one time that I would like to go to, if I could, would be the Garden of Eden when Satan was in the process of handing that fruit or that, and I would just go into that scene and I would say, no, don't do it. Why are you talking to a snake? What's wrong with you? Don't you realize what you're doing? Like, stop. You know, that, that would be my moment if I could go back in time. Now, my close second, if it had nothing to do with affecting me, would be chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And the episode that we see before us in the scriptures tonight and what is going to happen. If I could travel in time and I could grab a hold of King David, if I could get close enough and say, go fight with your men and get out of Jerusalem right now, that would be my second. Uh, This is not a good season, not a good moment. It is a turning point in the life of David. The chapter begins with a timestamp. It tells us in verse 1 that it took place after the year was expired. Now, I looked up the word year in the Bible dictionary, and what I found is that uh, the, the word is used three different ways. You'll see the word year, but it means three different things. Number one, it means a year. <laughs> so a, a period of the earth making a revolution around the sun, a period of one year. But number two is just a revolution of time is that sometimes a year can be used to not necessarily be specifically one year, but it can just be a revolution, a part of a a long cycle or a measured cycle of time. And then the third way it's used, uh, very simply, is as a repetition. And I saw that word and it jumped out at me because I, I feel like you know, yes, this is a literal year that that had passed and had expired, but that word repetition really kind of communicates clearly the setting that set the stage for what's about to happen. Now, you guys know by now, if you've been going along with us, that the subject 
of our studies in 2 Samuel, it's called established. Because what we've seen in 2 Samuel is David is through with his struggles and he has now been established. He's in his place, in his calling, in his purpose. The crown is on his head. Life is happening for him and everything that he has been prepared for has now come to pass. He's established. And that's something that every one of us craves. The Bible talks in the New Testament about how after we have suffered a while, that God will establish, strengthen, and settle us in the place that we've been called to. And we crave that. We desire to be in the place where we are established by God. But established brings along the less desired sister with her. And what established brings with it is this thing called repetition. See, before we're established, we know chaos because it seems like everything is crazy. Nothing is stable. We're moving from place to place. Life is changing constantly. Our emotions are up and down. There's uncertainty and there's a chaos in our lives before we are established. But once we become established, chaos leaves and now repetition begins. And a funny thing can happen with repetition is that there's a certain personality that kind of gets addicted to chaos and doesn't do too good with repetition. So we crave to be established, but we can get bored with repetition. And that begins to bring danger into our lives. And thus to be established requires a new discipline. We have to learn something new, and that is consistency. The ability to do the same things over and over again faithfully without getting bored and without inviting chaos back into our lives. So for someone like David, who is so used to chaos and so used to activity and excitement and constant change, you can see how it's easy to get bored when you're in a season that calls for just faithful repetition. And that's the idea. The year was expired. It's the time for certain things to happen, just like they do every year. And David says, ah, I've been doing this for a little while now. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to battle. I don't want to do it. I want to do something different this year. I have a, 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 a son, I have three sons, but my oldest son, uh, he has started working out with me. And so um, he actually is, is, is in better shape than I am. He's got that youth thing that I am quickly losing, you know, and, and so we work out. And, and so I was at the gym with him and I was watching and he is an all-inner. He doesn't do anything partially. He doesn't quit anything that he does. It's just his personality is the way he is. And, and, you know, the culture of the gym these days is that you don't really ask for a spotter. You know, it used to be like you'd say to anybody, be like, hey, come on over and give me a spot. Like, even if the, the little old lady was the only one there, you'd just be like, hey, could you give me a spot? You know, you just always get a spot. But we don't do that anymore in the gym. So I was watching him. I was doing something else, and he was on his bench press. He's trying to build his bench press. And so he, he put a good amount of weight on, and I'm watching him. He pulls it off. He pumps it out. He starts pumping it out. I'm going, yes, yes. And he's rep- repetitions, repetitions, repetitions. He's going strong, strong strong, and then I watch, fail. And he gets about halfway up, and it starts coming down. And so I, like, kind of discreetly walk over and, you know, help, help it up. But, but there's something that can happen with repetition. 
when you're doing repetitions, you're doing the same thing over and over again, is that you can be strong, 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 and then fail. And that's exactly what happens to David. He's been strong, 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 but now he's about to fail in a very important and, and, and unfixable uh, way, okay? Now, if you want to stay established, then that requires that you must stay faithful to the season that you're in because repetition is a part of life. You cannot escape it. It's what it is. Now, listen, seasons will change, but we must be consistent to what God has called us to in the season that we are in. Your kids are not going to be small forever. They're not going to be at home forever. It can seem like an eternity when you're doing the same things every day and you're washing the same pile of clothes or when you're watching your bank account deplete as quickly as it fills up because of the amount of bills that have to be paid. And it can get tiring in the repetitiveness of it all. But it is not forever. Those seasons will change. Our faithfulness in the season we're in, must not change. And here's why. Because the blessing we want to experience in the season that is coming is contingent upon our faithfulness to the season that we're in. And if we're not faithful in the season that we're in, then we won't be blessed in the season that we're going to be set up for because we are sowing today what we will reap tomorrow. Tomorrow's harvest is the result of today's seeds. And faithfulness in cultivating that is what we are called to do, okay? Now, David's season that he is in, what God has called him to, brought with it an expectation. It tells us right there in verse 1 that it is the time of year that kings go forth to battle. It doesn't say peasants. It doesn't say soldiers. It doesn't say common, ordinary men or mighty men. It says it's the time of year that kings go forth to battle. That is the expectation. Now, culturally, that was true. We know that because the Bible emphatically just says, hey, everybody knows that this is the time of year that kings go forth to battle. It was culturally right. That's what was expected of David. It was also his calling. Do you remember when the people asked for a king? What did they want? They wanted someone who would go fight their battles. That was number one on the king's responsibility list, is that he would lead out in the battles. That's what David has faithfully done all the way up until now. And so there was an expectation upon him in the season that he was in, culturally, and also according to his calling. However, David's position and wealth and reputation created for him an exemption if he wanted to use it. He had the power, he had the privilege, he had even the permission, at least from the people, to not do what was expected of him in this season because of who he was. He was the king. He had people on the payroll for this. He had an established military. They had some power and some resources, and he didn't really have to be there. They could win, and they did win without him. And so he had kind of an exemption to what was expected of him. But there's a third reason why it was expected 
of David to do it. It wasn't just cultural, and it wasn't just his calling, but listen carefully, because this is what you need to understand, is that David's call to fight the battle was also his covering. It was a covering for David to go out, okay? God ordained that David be fighting battles with real enemies in this season, Okay, so let's translate this. Let's bring this into, uh, if we were writing Bible about you, this is your story. It would read this way, that it was the time of day that businessmen do business, but Bob played golf. Okay, it was the time of day that house moms pour into their kids, but mom was on Instagram. It was the time of day that students fully engage and sowing into their future, but Billy was playing Minecraft, okay? That's what was going on here in the text. There was an expectation. There was something that was expected of David, but he excused himself from that expectation because he didn't see it as that important. But what he didn't realize is that the expectation that was placed upon him The call that was a battle, that was dangerous, that was hard, that brought pain, that that was a covering over his life that was protecting him from something that he didn't understand and something that he couldn't see. The fight that God called David to fight in this season of his life was actually David's fortress to shield him from a disaster and a danger that he didn't know was lurking in the resting place, okay? The battle was his covering from a more dangerous battle. I want to bring a verse to your mind here. Remember when Adam did fall and God brought the curse, that wretched curse that we all feel? In Genesis 3.17, when God was telling Adam what would follow, He said this, he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. It's Genesis 3, 17. He says, cursed is the ground for your sake. Do you see that? And and then he tells him, he says, in sorrow, you're going to eat of the ground all the days of your life. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So the earth is going to bring forth thorns. It's not going to be easy for me to make it produce. It's going to be in sorrow and sweat that I have to work. And God, you're saying this is for my good? Yes. Okay. God says, I am actually doing this in part, not as a punishment, but as a protection. I'm doing this for you because you need to be busy in the battle that I have placed before you. Otherwise, you're going to get into more trouble than you're already in right now. And thus, God has placed a battle before David. David stays at home And David needs to be in it. There is a season in our lives that we must battle. And that battle is different for every one of us. For some of us, the battle is our boss. For some of us, the battle is the routine. For some of us, the battle is just the grind of early, young, or later adulthood. Whatever stage we're in, there's a battle that we're called to fight. And God has given us that battle as our covering. Now, you might have an exemption. You might be able to collect extended unemployment benefits and actually do better staying at home than you would grinding out the hours that you would work each week. That's an exemption. 
I don't have to go to the battle because I have something that's providing what the battle would give to me if I just stay home. That might not be the best thing for you, okay? Because God has called you in this season of your life to be busy and not to be idle, okay? You might have gained an inheritance, and because of the inheritance, it allows you to not have to be busy, but that might not be a good thing. You might be privileged in some way. But understand this, the reason for the battle that you're in and facing right now is that you are being protected from something that you don't understand. It's more than just providing. It's more than just doing. There's something else going on. My wife is an expert at distraction, diversion. You good parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. She has this way of seeing when one of my kids is about to do something, say something, or even think something that's unacceptable. And and she has this way of intercepting it before it happens by bringing a distraction. I don't know how she does it, but she sees it, and she can get them to just turn. And a complaint will become, you know, a flash of excitement over something that she gives them, or, you know, a responsibility or something. She can do it. She's good. God is even better, okay? And God sees what's in us, and he sees what's around us, and he gives us things to do that will protect us from what is coming, okay? There is a battle that rages in the bodies and in the minds of every human being, but there's a specific one in the bodies and the minds of young men. And everyone faces it, and probably all young women, I can't speak for them, okay? But I can tell you this, that in that battle, You are safer in a bunker with a helmet on your head waiting for the next grenade to go off somewhere and wondering if you're going to live to see another day. You are safer there than you are on a holiday weekend vacation somewhere at perfect rest. Okay? And God understands that. And what does that mean? It means this. It means that you could write half the book of Psalms. You could have more battle experience than anyone else and know the fight better than anyone else. But if you are idle when you are supposed to be fighting, then it doesn't matter how intense your history is with God, you are in danger of being taken out in your prime. Tells us in the verse, David tarried still in Jerusalem. Do you see that word still? David was resting when he was supposed to be fighting, and that set the stage for everything that happened after. He was idle during battle. Well, it tells us in verse 2, it says that it came to pass in an evening tide, in an evening, that David arose from off his bed. Now, who gets up in the evening? Now, I've seen college students, all right, that it's close, But we're talking, this guy slept until evening. The sun is beginning to set, and he yawns, stretches out, and says, what am I going to do today? Wow, what a nice sunrise or sunset. Why is it on the wrong side of the horizon? He's been sleeping. He rises from his bed in the evening, and it says that he walked upon the roof of the king's house, the palace skywalk. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And it says that the woman was very beautiful to look upon. David arose. He saw a woman bathing. She was beautiful. 
Now catch the context. This is the same David who fiercely defended the honor of God when it was threatened by a giant named Goliath who was cursing the God of Israel. The same David who refused to bring harm upon his enemies, upon Saul, because he wanted to honor God with the future of his life. The same David who wouldn't drink the water that was brought to him by his men who hazarded their lives to bring David water, but he wouldn't drink it because he said, this water is the blood of these men. How can I drink this water in the sight of the Lord? This is the same David that made God the epicenter of his kingdom, of the nation, of the city that he's in. This is the same David. But when that same David was in an environment or a situation or a setting that was a temptation to his weakness, he found himself capable of doing something that he never thought that he was capable of doing. And it can happen to anyone. For David, it was a woman washing herself in proximity to his palace, something that he probably knew was going on. For some, it might be to sit in a bar and just have a Coke or a seltzer or a club soda. For others, it might be being on the internet or standing in front of the pantry after everyone else in the house has gone to sleep. For you, you know what it is. But when you put yourself in front of it, it doesn't matter what your history with God is or how spiritual you are or how how much you love God because the flesh is the flesh for every single one of us. And David finds himself walking into a moment where temptation and desire and opportunity all come together in a way that no one can resist. And if it can happen to David, it can happen to anyone. Now, I want to go out on a limb and suggest to you that David knew the cityscape around the palace from the palace skywalk. He knew who lived where. He knew what was going on in in the houses at the certain times. I also want to suggest that the cityscape was aware of where the palace wall and the palace skywalk was. And I don't think this was so much of just something that, oh, this just happened. I think David knew exactly what he was looking for. And I think probably whatever was in that window also wanted to be seen. How does this happen? How does it happen that someone like David, whom we've seen, a hero of the faith, a person who loves God, falls into a temptation like this? Those that study human psychology, they they tell us, and, and, and we don't need them to tell us, but they define it for us is that there's two different parts of the brain and that one of those parts of the brain is in charge of logic and reason and thinking and evaluating. And the other part is in charge of desire and pleasure. And when the part of the brain that is in charge of desire and pleasure is stimulated, it short circuits the part of the brain that can reason and evaluate and use logic and it becomes more powerful. It hijacks the thinking consequential part of the brain. And all of a sudden, you find yourself doing things that logic would tell you are really, 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 really bad. And that's what happens to David. The part of the brain that tells us that we should do something is hijacked by the part of the brain that tells us what we would like to do, and that's true for every one of us as long as we have a body. Advertisers know it. That's why they use the tactics that they do to get us to do and spend and give ourselves to the things that we do. 
Intelligence agencies in the world know this. It's why they're able to manipulate and grab hold of and leverage people and governments because they can manipulate the desires of leaders and they can set, you've ever heard of honey traps? You know, they can do things, get them to do things where they control them with ransom of actions that they did. This is a scary thing to realize that even someone like David can be tempted in this way. But there's good news. You know what the good news is? The good news is the Bible tells us this, gives us a promise. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And it says this. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says that there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Every single one of us has the weakness of being subject to falling into our temptations. And God knows it. But God is also faithful that when we are tempted, he will create for us and make for us a way of escape so that we are not overcome by our temptations and we're not given in to those temptations. It is not sin to be tempted. It's human. It's normal for a fallen being to be tempted. It becomes sin when we act upon it and the temptation turns into an action. That's when it becomes sin. And so God sees us, knows us, and when we are tempted, he provides a way of escape. And there are actually six opportunities that are given to David, six doors of escape in the text here, to keep him from the consequences of what will be if he goes through with this thing according to it. Six doors that God provides for David. He provides the door and he provides the knock. It is on the individual to take the way of escape. God doesn't make us escape. God, if you don't want me to drink this, then rip it out of my hand. He doesn't do that. He'll make the way of escape but he gives us the responsibility of walking through the open door. I gave the title to the message tonight, Knock, Knock. Because Jesus said, I stand at the door of the heart and I knock. And what we see here are six knocks, six times that God knocks upon David's noggin, upon David's heart, to warn him against what he's about to go into and get into and what it will cost him. And I want to show you what those things are because it's the same for us as it is for David. The first one, it's there that we've already seen it. It's kind of of assumed and it's the knock of conscience. It's the knock of conscience. It's something that God has given to every single one of us, the ability to have internally a sense when we are going in the wrong direction. This is always God's first and preferred way of escape, is the pangs upon our conscience that we know what we're doing is wrong. Now, I know, okay, because I've been alive long enough to experience it, that David knows that he's supposed to be in battle. He may have the excuse, he can justify it any which way he wants to, but I know that David knows he's supposed to be at work. He's not supposed to be home at this time. I know that because I've done it. How many of you here have ever called out sick from work when you're not really sick before? Anybody? Am, am I the only one that's ever done that? All right, all right hands down, hands down, hands down. Now, now, I want, now here, I want you to honestly answer this question. How many of you 
actually enjoyed that day when you did it. You really genuinely said, I, I, I'm so glad I did that. I, I feel so great, you know, that I called in. You have no conscience, okay? <laughs> None. Because I, I never did. I always thought, like, this is going to be great. I'm going to catch up on some sleep. I can, it's a free day. I can do it all day long. It's like, it should be at work. It should be at work. It should be. I, they must know. I wonder if they know. I wonder if they know. I wonder what they're saying right now about me right now. I call in sick. I wonder who's saying, like, he's not really sick. He just banged in today. It's like, I know. I remember one time early on, I was just a young man, carpenter's apprentice. I mean, I was probably newly married. I'm probably 21 years old. And I called in sick, and I wasn't sick. I just wanted a day. And all day long, all day, it was the worst day of my life. It was like, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied. You should be at work. You should be at work. I had midweek Bible study that night at church. I'm sitting in the pew, and all I'm, I'm, the, the songs are coming out of my mouth. I want to know you. And internally, it's you lied, you lied, you lied. I'm telling you the truth, okay, a younger, more zealous me. I got up, I walked out of the service, I went into the church secretary's office, picked up the phone, called my supervisor at home, and confessed. I, sa- I said, Steve, I lied to you this morning. I wasn't sick, I just didn't want to come to work, and I, I, you can fire me if you want to, but I cannot continue to hear this voice inside of me all day. So you know, he says, I'll talk to you tomorrow, and we hang up the phone, and I'm like, ugh. You know, do you know, not only did I not get fired, but that guy trusted me for the rest of the time that I worked there. You know, I became one of his favorites, just telling the truth. But, but you know when you're supposed to be somewhere and you lied and you're not supposed to. David knows it's the ping of conscience, okay? David also knows that he shouldn't be sleeping in the day while his men are out on the field fighting. That's in his mind, okay? He's a spirit-filled man of God. He knows that he's not in the right place. And then watch what happens in verse 3. It says in verse 3 that David, after seeing this beautiful woman washing herself in a window, it says that David sent and inquired after the woman. David knew that he should not be inquiring after the woman. All right? There's something going on inside. Stop, David. Stop it. Stop it stop. And David's going, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I just want to know she is. And so he's like, hey, you know, there's a house over in Luther. They just put siding up on the walls. Whose house is that? They do nice work over there. Oh, that's, how, you know, he, you, can, you can hide it. You can justify it. David knows he's not supposed to be doing it. Okay? Conscience. God uses the conscience. He knocks upon it. One of my sons Okay, let me not say that. I don't want to embarrass anybody. I've had issues in the past with my kids where they have done things. And they're not necessarily harmful things to anybody else, but maybe harmful to property or in some way. And I've asked them this question. I have said, was there a little voice in your head while you were doing that that was saying to you, don't do this? And almost always the answer is, "Uh uh-huh. And I will say, next time, listen to that voice, please. (laughs) listen to that voice. Conscience is powerful. And do you know that God will hold you accountable for the conversation that he has with you in your conscience? Because God deals in the realm of thought. That's where he meets with us. Jesus said to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, I think it's Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I am the one who tries the reins and the heart. Do you know what the reins are? It's your thoughts. It's what governs and drives what you do. It's the inner workings of the quiet person inside. God says, I see that. 
Jesus said that we will be judged by our thoughts, by our emotions. God reads and he sees all of it. Nothing is hidden from him. That's where he speaks to us. That's where his word comes to us. It comes to us in the place of our conscience under the surface. And thus we will be judged by the things that God convicts us with in our conscience. David doesn't respond to the first knock of God. The the next three, numbers two, three, and four, these knocks of God are all given to us in the last part of um, uh, verse three and then in, in, in verse four. It says this, it says that David inquired after the woman, actually they're in verse three, and and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Okay, what's, what's number two? Door number two is that David was told this is someone's daughter. This woman is young enough to be his daughter. We're going to find out who she is in just a minute. But this is somebody's daughter, David. I remember when my firstborn, my daughter, was born. And I looked at her, and I just, there, there was such a love. There was such a purity. It was like holding the baby that I just, I just remember what it was like. I remember one in, instance where we were driving with some family members, and she was in the car. We only had one. And one of the family members dropped an S-bomb in the car. And I almost, as a young, zealous dad, slammed on the brakes. And, and wanted, I wanted to strangle because of the word that went into the ear of my beautiful, innocent daughter. What have you done? You know, and I was so angry. I just remember, this is my daughter. And it changed the way I looked at women forever that this is a daughter, this is somebody's daughter. I think about the prayers that I've prayed, the things that I've pleaded for her, and to think that she could become, that she could be the object of somebody's lust in some way. It kills me as a father. And no doubt it was the intention of God bringing this message to David, this is somebody's daughter that you're considering doing this thing with, that you're chasing this temptation with. Number three, he says that she's the daughter of Eliam. Do you know who Eliam was? Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was the head of David's CIA. In other words, Bathsheba is the granddaughter of one of David's chief cabinet members. Now, that should be a warning. Okay, if you get involved here, you're probably going to have problems in the future. There's going to be a ripple effect, and it's going to come back to bite you. David doesn't listen to knock number three. Knock number four, not only is she the daughter of Eliam, but she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, that should be the end. She's married. She's got a ring on her finger. She's in a covenant relationship with a man before the God who you serve as king, as his king. That's the end. She's married. That's a knock on David's heart. Again, David doesn't hear it. Isn't it funny how you can hear what you want to hear? I I think that God said wife. David heard Hittite. Okay, she's she's the wife of Uriah the the Hittite. What? (laughs) Wait, what? The daughter of who? The daughter of a Hittite. Well, the Hittites, they're not even legitimate in this land. Like, God doesn't even recognize them as, they shouldn't even be alive anymore. Like, they were amongst the people groups that were to be completely wiped out when we took, came into this land. 
this has got to be heartbreaking for her family. She married a Hittite? That's cr- I mean, if you married outside your tribe in ancient Israel, it was frowned upon by your family. If you married outside the nation, you were utterly cast away. You did what? You married a Hittite? And I think David was thinking to himself like, wow, this could actually be an open door. I remember Abigail and Nabal. She was married to a horrible man. There was a connection and a spark between us. And 10 days after our conversation, God killed Nabal and gave Abigail to me. This could be God. God might be putting this together. This is great. Because I'm thinking, David, why are you still going forward? But David is hearing what David wants to hear. David, his logic has been hijacked by his desire, and he is barreling through the roadblocks that God has placed in front of him. Not only does David justify it in that way, but watch what happens in verse 4. It says that David sent messengers and he took her and she came in unto him and he laid with her. And then it says, for, that's a reason word. Here's the reason. She was purified from her uncleanness and then she returned unto her house. You know what that means? It means that her cycle had just ended. She had gone through the ceremonial period of seven days after her cycle was over of being ritually purified, wherein it was now okay for her husband to approach her sexually. And David finds out in the conversation, I don't know how that conversation, how did that come up? You know, like David's like, so when was your last period? I mean, how does that even come up in a conversation, you know? And all of a sudden it comes to like, yeah, I just was purified. That's why I was bathing, by the way. I was just, that was the end. David's like, this has got to be God. I mean, you know, he's still alive. He's going to die in 10 days. I don't know who. It says that he laid with her. And then she goes home. He said, you can't stay here. (laughs) Do you know what this is going to look like? I have... 12 other wives. If they see you here overnight in the morning, this is not going to go over too good. You better just go home. You probably sleep better at home anyways. David sends her home. Listen, you will always, and you can always, find a way to justify an evil act. You will surround yourself with the voices that will tell you what you want to hear. You will close out everything that tells you and leads you to what you don't want to hear or what you don't want to think, and you can deceive yourself into justifying anything that you want to. I don't care how much you love God. I will go out on a limb to say that there's not a person here that loves God more than David did. And yet David fell victim to this. It's what happens. All you have to do is ignore the word of God and be able to answer your conscience. She's married to a Hittite. She's married. This was God. This was the whole thing. He walks right through it. The fifth knock upon David's heart happens in the white space between verses four and five. See, in that thing, let's read verse five. It says that the woman conceived and she sent and she told David and she said, I am with child. That means that there was at least two weeks that passed, probably three between the time that David was with Bathsheba and the time that he gets the message from her that she finds out that she had two lines on the EPT, on the, on the pregnancy test. And she knows she hasn't been with anybody else, and so she sends a message back to David, and she says, I am with child, and the implication is clear that it, it is David. In that interim, 
David actually describes for us. It's Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. David describes what was going on inside of him. Let me read it to you. It's Psalm chapter 32, verse 3. David says this. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Do you know what your bones, when it talks about how his bones literally dried up inside of him, his bones wax old, what it means is that he lost his vitality and his energy in the deepest place. The bones is is where the well of renewal happens. It's where the marrow is. It's like where the cells are formed, like the root of where life and vitality comes from is in your bones. And David says that the very well source of my life and vitality dried up within me. He says that my substance wore out, my personality died, my vigor died. There was a death that was going on inside of me. And he says that there was a roaring from the deepest place inside of me, a distress cry. That from the deepest place inside, and he says all the day, meaning the whole period of time, which means for two or three weeks during this, the knock of God was loudly pounding upon his heart. Why are you so dead right now? Why are you so dead right now? And David was silent. He was silent. He's like, no, what I'm doing is okay. What I'm doing is okay. What I'm doing is okay. I'm the king. I'm King David. Everything I do works out. Everything I touch turns to gold. Every endeavor I go on, everything has worked out. Abigail worked out. All the other wives worked out. It's all going to work out. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. And meanwhile, there was death. Everybody's looking at David going, what happened to him? What's wrong with him? He's died inside. He's dead inside. Here's the danger of being in that place is that when you're in this place, the part of you that would run to God, that part dries up too. And usually you don't come out of it until you've been severely shaken by something. You're stuck in that place. I believe that's part of the reason why we give messages like this when we come to them in the scriptures. Because sometimes hearing a message like this, when you're in that place where you've already given into something and you're feeling the weight of conviction and the shame of it, sometimes a message like this is like the defibrillator. It's, it is enough of a shock to make you wake up and say, I need to change the course. I need to go a different direction. I know if I continue down this, this is not going to be good. It's better to have paddles to the heart than the paddle that's going to come. Believe me. The sixth knock upon, the sixth and final knock, comes in verses 6 through 11. Let's read it. It says that David then sent to Joab. So David finds out she's pregnant. And so David says, I've got to cover this up. This is not going to be good. David sent to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, if I'm reading this for the first time, I'm going, yes, David, repent, confess, tell him what you did, beg for his forgiveness. It's going to be all right. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. David puts on his political face. He hides his shame behind whatever he has to. And he begins just talking politics. Let's talk issues. Tell me what's going on out on the battlefield. How are things going, good old boy? And David said to Uriah, well, you know what? This has been a great visit. Go down to your house and wash your feet. 
And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat. That means a big pile of food from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. David's like, you know, I'm going to give you some wine, give you some food. Why don't you go home, spend the night with your wife. You're weary, you're battle-worn. Go and just rest, relax, take a night off. What do you think David's got in mind? He'll be with his wife. She'll be with child. Everybody will think it's his child. Issue gone, cover it up. It's all done. It's all gone. No big deal. Uriah says, I can't do that. I, uh, this isn't be right. He goes to the gate. He sleeps with the servants and he doesn't go down to his house. Now, verse 10, it says, when they told David saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David then called Uriah again. He says to him, camest thou not from your journey? Why then did you not go down to your house? Oh, here's the knock. You ready for it? And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Oh my goodness. Think about what Uriah the Hittite just said to David, the king of Judah and the king of Israel. He said, the ark and Israel and Judah are out in the battlefield right now, abiding in tents. And David's going, so you're a Hittite. You're not supposed to care about, you're supposed, you're not a Fox News guy. You're not Newsmax. You're CNN. You're one of those. You're not, you're, you're not one of us. Like, you can't, like, you're not supposed to do this. You're a Hittite. You're on the other team. Like, what do you mean that you care about the ark in Israel and Judah abiding in tents? No, 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 no. This isn't right. This isn't what I thought. You're not that bad. You're not Nabal. He says, listen, this is essentially what Uriah says. If he looks him right in the face and he doesn't swear by the Lord, he doesn't say as the Lord lives. He says to David, he says, David, As your soul lives, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David, I have heard the stories of the young man that you were out on the battlefield. I have heard the stories of when you said, oh, that what I wouldn't give for a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. And your men pierced through the line and they brought you water. They brought, you could have got Poland Springs, they brought water that you wanted and risked their lives. You got the water and you poured it on the ground and wouldn't drink it because it was the lives of your men. And I was a Hittite and I heard the stories of who you were. And it was a conversion experience for me. And as you live, that's the way I want to live. I want to be like you. I will not be the kind of man that will go and sleep with my lawfully wedded wife while all of your men are out in the field. No, David, that's not the example that you've set for us. That's not the kind of man that you are. And as you are, that's the kind of man that I want to be. Put yourself in David's shoes. There is no stronger conviction than when you have sinned greatly against a man and the man doesn't know it. And then that man comes into your face and tells you how much you have shaped and influenced his life and that he wants to be just like you. 
There is no greater knocking. Now, in my mind, I wish, I wish that at this point here, David said, Uriah, sit down. I need to talk to you for a minute. And he said, Uriah, I have really, really, really blown it. Let me take my crown off for a minute. Let me take over. Let me talk to you as a man talks to men. I took your wife. And I sinned against you. I sinned against God. I sinned against her. I sinned against heaven. I fell into my greatest temptation. There's been a weakness in me for as long as I can remember. And I put myself in a position and in a situation where I allowed temptation and desire and opportunity to unite. And you and your wife are the victims of it. And I am sorry before a holy God. And I am willing to embrace what consequences you would call for and what God would bring upon my life. But I can't live like this. This isn't what I've been called to do. And I think that if David had done that in that moment, the rest of 2 Samuel and the rest of David's life would have read completely differently than it does. But David is in a mode and in a zone and in a place where there is not much going on between him and God right now. And even the strength of conviction that comes from a conversation like this is not enough to get through to David right now. And so it tells us in verse 12 that David said to Uriah, we'll tarry here today also. And tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day. And when David had called him, one more try, he did eat and drink before him and he made him drunk. And at evening he went down to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he went not down to his house. David said, all right, well, even the strongest of men, let me get him drunk. I'll get him drunk. I'll send him home. I'll try it one last time. But Uriah doesn't go. And so verse 15 I'm sorry, verse 14. It says that it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. He writes, he seals, he stamps, hands it to Uriah. And it came to pass that when Joe, or I'm sorry, and he wrote in the letter, verse 15, saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and then pull back from him that he may be smitten and die. David at this point commits murder on top of the adultery that he has already committed in an attempt now to cover up his sin and to not be exposed and suffer the consequences and the shame that it might bring. So Joab sent and told David, sorry, verse 17, um, verse 16, it came to pass that when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah into a place where he knew the valiant men were, And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab and there fell some of the people of the servants of David and Uriah the Hittite died also. Listen, at this point, the knocking stops. God lets go and God says the consequences will be what the consequences are. And David uses his power as king to murder a man and then take his wife. Now, two things things happen at this moment for David. Number one is that David seals his consequences. And he does not even know what they are yet. He will find out for the rest of his life. But David seals his consequences. The ripple effects of his actions are now irreversible and irredeemable. He will be forgiven. And he will be in heaven. And God will keep his promises and his faithfulness to David. But David will endure the consequences of what he did. He sealed them. When you are a student of the Bible and when you're a student of life and you watch, it hurts when you watch people going down a path like this because you know the things that are coming for them. 
The second thing that David that happens to David here is that David has just, for all intents and purposes, lost his crown. Not in the literal sense like Saul or, or something where God took away the kingdom from David. It didn't happen in a literal sense like that. And it wasn't even kind of in the church sense, the church sense where we say like, don't lose your crown, like don't lose your crown. It wasn't really even so much like that. It was in the spiritual sense. The crown speaks of David's authority. And at this moment, David's authority is gone. He loses all authority as a dad, as a leader of his family, and he has just taken himself And he has removed himself from being the authority of Israel and he has reinserted himself under Joab. Because Joab is aware of what David just did. And for the rest of David's life, he will do what Joab says. Because Joab has the power now to take David down. And thus David has removed the crown from off his head and he traded it for a temporary experiences. Now watch what happens. We'll read the rest of the chapter. It says, so Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger saying, when you have made an end of telling the matters of the war to the king, and if it be so that the king's wrath arise, and he say to you, why he approached you so nigh unto the city when you fought? Know ye not that, that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jer- Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went you so near the wall? Then say thou to David, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field and we were upon them even from the entering in of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants and some of the king's servants be dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David sent unto the messenger, or said to the messenger, Thus shall you say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the mourning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, And she became his wife and bare him a son. Pause right there. Save the last verse for the very, very, very end. David thinks it's all covered up now. Uriah died in battle. Very few people know about this thing. He sweeps in as the knight in shining armor, this poor young widow who's been bereaved of her husband. And how will she now keep things going? I will be the benevolent king. And I will take this young woman into my harem and she will be my wife. And the nation looked on and said, that's our king. That's our king. Man, he's just always, always looking out for others. Just heroic in every situation. Even for a Hittite, he would go and take the reproach of this young woman away. Wow, we love David. David said, yes, I am your, your king and your son. Yeah, the whole thing. All covered up. All neat. All clean. No. Because you might be able to hide the actions The deeds, you might be able to hide it from men and no one on this side of eternity may ever find out the things that you did. But do you see the last sentence? It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God sees it. God knows. And God's not going to let David get away with it. 
I remember one vivid moment from when I was a child. I was just a young young guy. And remember, we used to go to Niagara Falls when we would have visitors. We only lived an hour away from it, and people had never seen it, so we would go to Niagara Falls all the time. And I remember um, on one particular instance, we had gone there, and uh, we were standing on this, um, you know, overhang cliff that looks down upon the Niagara River and there's this place where there's this whirlpool where the where the river kind of takes a sharp turn there's a photo of it that'll go up on the on the screen I think it's supposed to uh, in, in just a moment of that there that th- that's that's it you can kind of kind of see it you see part of it sort of but you can't see where it turns you could in the wide and anyway uh, <laughs> google it the Niagara River whirlpool you can see it Anyway, there's a whirlpool there, and I remember as a child standing there, and there was a balloon. Someone, you know, like a little child will, will let their balloon go, and the balloon lands somewhere. There was a balloon, and you could see the balloon, and it was just going around on the outer edges of the whirlpool. The balloon, a red balloon, I remember it. it was just, I'm colorblind. It might not have been red, but I remember red. It was going around and around and around. And I remember the guest uh, that we had brought, the, this lady that she was there, she, she grabbed me by the hand, and she said, do you see that balloon right there? She said, if you were in those waters, you would never get out. And I remember just watching that thing. And I can't tell you how many times that picture has served me in my life of thinking that there is a thing that you can get into. There is a current that you can get into that you can't get out of it once you've been sucked into it. There are actually two whirlpools in this text. There's two of them. The first one you can get out of. We'll call it the whirlpool of conviction. Because God says that he will provide for you a way of escape. When you are being tempted, and when you sense yourself being drawn, and you are on your way down a path that you know that you should not be on, and God begins to knock, and he's giving you a way of escape, if you take the way of escape, you can get out of the first whirlpool. But there's a second whirlpool in this text, and we'll call it the whirlpool of consequences. And once you have been taken in by the whirlpool of conviction and not gotten out, and you are now in the whirlpool of having committed the action, and you are not repentant of it, you are now in the whirlpool of consequences. And you will go around and around and around, and you just know. And it is a scary, scary thing to be in. David displeased the Lord. I hope and pray tonight, and I'm confident, that this message that I'm preaching, sharing with you tonight, that it is not for everyone that's here. I'm confident of that, okay? Everyone gets in a funk sometimes. Everyone gets overtaken by the boredom of the routine, Everyone can fall into that. The year has expired. The thrill of what was new has now become routine. If you're in that place where you're just in a funk and you find yourself right now distant from God and in a place where you are vulnerable to temptation, it is more important than any other time that you hold on to doing what you should do and resisting what you would like to do. I would like to retire, but should you retire? I would like to collect unemployment a little bit longer, but should you? I would like to move and get out of here, but should you? Is it what you should do? What is the Lord leading in your life? Do what you should do, not what you'd like to do. 
It's also important to realize that everyone gets tempted and everyone will get a way of escape. And you and I, we have a responsibility. We have a part to play in seeing to it that temptation, desire, and opportunity never come together at the same time. God will give us every way of escape from keeping that from happening because when those three things unite in any life, you are in severe danger of going down a road that you don't want to go down. And we have a responsibility to resist being in that place. There is power in resolve. Did you hear what Uriah said? He said, I will not do this thing. Now, a lot of times we say, you know, don't bother with resolutions. There's no power or strength in your flesh and that whole thing. And I get that. I understand it. But there is power when you and I resolve that we want to live a certain way and we're not going to go down certain roads. And resolve in this text is more powerful even than drunkenness. Because Uriah, in a weakened mental condition, holds on to the resolve that he made. There are two things that I am persuaded can only be built into a life when you are young. One of those things is organization, (laughs) being organized. And actually, I forgot what the other one was. I didn't write it down because I was relying too much on my memory. What was it, Rocky? I, I think I told you. Where's Rocky? He's right behind me. What was the other one? He doesn't remember either, and he's young, you know. I'll remember, I'll tell you next week, but there's two things. One of them is organization. Man, it was good too. Anyways, early in your Christian life, resolve is important. To resolve and say, I'm not going down this road like Daniel did. I resolve, I'm not going to drink the king's wine. I'm not going to eat of his delicacies. I'm not going down that road. That's just not going to be what defines who I am as a person. When you give in, you break down the power of resolve. And it's important that you and I resolve. And then lastly, and I'm sorry for going long tonight. I'll blame the baby dedication. (laughs) Not the baby, the dedication. (laughs) Is that everyone who repents is forgiven. Okay? Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus said that he stands at the door and knocks, that word follows the command to repent. He says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then he says that everyone I love, I rebuke and chasten. And he says, I stand at the door and I knock. Okay? He will be faithful to give you warnings and ways of escape. And he will knock. And anyone who repents, even after the fact, David had chances after the fact to repent. But he didn't. And God stopped knocking. And the next time God knocks, it's going to be with a battering ram. And it's going to happen in chapter 12. And David will be busted because he would not be broken. I pray in Jesus' name that that is not the story for anyone here. And I implore you before God that if you are in either one of those whirlpools, don't wait until you sink. Go to Jesus and say, I repent. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Take me out of this. Do the things in my life that need to happen that I not go down the road that will be destruction. Father, I pray tonight for for our congregation. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us. I know a word like this is hard to hear. It's not the kind where we leave all encouraged and charged up, but sometimes, Lord, we need the defibrillator. Sometimes we need the paddles to the heart. And so tonight, Lord, I pray 
that this would be a reminder that our decisions, our choices, our actions, our holiness, that those things matter. So help us, God. Help us to hear your voice. Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us, Lord, to love your ways. Lord, that's what we ask. It's our prayer. It's our need. And Lord, if we are in a place where we've already fallen and failed, we pray for your restoration and your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that like Samson, our hair would grow again, that you would yet use our lives in ways that we couldn't expect, and that you'd restore us like you did David. So help us, Lord. Give us wisdom. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your fathering, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.